2: WABE in Atlanta. This is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzis. Thank you for listening. Would you like Dinner with Picasso? The Edgewood String Quartet is performing a wide array of music Friday evening at Pullman Yards in a themed concert alongside a four course dinner designed to tell the story of the music. The event is part of Imagine Picasso, the 360 degree immersive exhibition at Pullman Yards. We'll hear about music of various styles, Picasso himself would have known, along with food and drinks inspired by his life. Also, dance canvas brings their diverse choreography. To the first setter at Georgia Tech First Do you consider yourself an ATLian rapper and love and hip hop Atlanta cast member? Amaretta the Great may have a bone to pick with you, especially if you did not grow up here. Her new single, Sorry, Not Sorry, clarifies her take on what she considers the real Atlanta. Amaretta the Great also challenges newcomers and outsiders who claim to understand the city. She joins me now via Zoom. Amaretta, welcome to City Lights. Hey. So... We're excited to talk about this powerful new single of yours, Sorry, Not Sorry. (laughs) For those who haven't yet heard it, would you explain what your track's about?
3: It's basically about people that's like from the outskirts of Atlanta or like surrounding cities from Atlanta claiming like when people ask them where they're from, they automatically say Atlanta when they're not from Atlanta. So it's a track. That's basically clarifying that all of those cities that surround Atlanta is not Atlanta. Like it's close to it, but it's it's still not Atlanta. This side or not I've siren. Yeah. climb around the world, know they felt that. earned all my strikes, and I got my respect. The whole city know I'm a beast. Look, if you not from this side, and you don't know the facts, you're chilling. Repeat after me. Call that part? It's not Atlanta. Light on you? It's not Atlanta. It's not Atlanta. Atlanta. It's not Atlanta. Clay Coe, it's not Atlanta. Decatur, it's not Atlanta. Good Nick, it's not Atlanta. Roswell, it's not Atlanta. Fort Paul, it's not Atlanta. Limburn, it's not Atlanta. The North, it's not Atlanta. The South, it's not Atlanta. It's not Atlanta. is not Atlanta. Big Rudder on two Atlanta. I had to get through Atlanta. I'm talking about the one, the three, and the four. The old, I don't know Atlanta. It's thick. They're gonna be mad about that. They're gonna
2: be Yes, you are a purist when it comes <laughs> to the city. Now, you have a lyric in the song, rep where you're from, don't rep where you hung. <laughs> Do you feel like outsiders are trying to redefine what Atlanta means without really knowing the city?
3: I feel like they just, it's a cool thing to say that they from Atlanta. That's what they automatically gravitate to. They say that they, they only say that because that's what outside is like people from out of state. That's what they know because it's a major city in Georgia. But I feel like they also say because it it's like a cool thing to say because everybody want to be from Atlanta. And the places that they're really from is not really known for real. So they're going to say Atlanta because that's like the most lit city in Georgia.
2: Yeah, because the city or I guess... The metropolitan area spreads out over this wide range of counties. I mean, we have so many counties that make up our city. I know you were born and raised in Atlanta. What part are you from?
3: I'm from, like, the metropolitan area. Like, it's an area called Zone 3, like Lakewood, Cleveland, Jonesboro, all
2: this stuff. Oh, wait. Jonesboro? Jonesboro? It's not no, Atlanta. Not, not,
3: not Jonesboro, Georgia, Jonesboro. Road.
2: Oh, okay. Amaretta, <laughs> do you want me to call you out here? <laughs> no. So tell us about growing up in your part of the city. Do you have a lot of affection for the neighborhood where you grew up?
3: I wouldn't say I got a lot of affection. I just take pride in like where I'm from because it made me who I am today. And we had to like go through a lot of stuff in our neighborhood. And you know what I'm saying? We wasn't like really that fortunate. So we had to do a lot of struggling around. So it's like I take pride in in the stuff that made me who I am today. Because it really molded me to be stronger. And it really molded me to like any type of obstacles that come my way, I know how to attack them. So I wouldn't say like I just love the neighborhood cuz it's like a a beat down neighborhood like they're trying to rebuild it now, you know what I'm saying? So I don't love it. I just I just take pride in it. Well, that's impressive. Yeah.
2: So now what does Atlanta mean to you? I'm curious about different scenes, landmarks, things that you think Atlanta couldn't be without that they are the essence of Atlanta what's special to you I
3: ain't gonna lie I feel like Atlanta is I don't know nothing that's like really special no more because like I feel like the city just changes so rapidly like it's so many condos being built I feel like it's turning into like the new LA or the new New York or something like I don't I, I don't really know nothing that's just like I just love it because I'm going to eventually move away from Atlanta because there's too many people from the outside coming here. And it's like the city just filled with like people from out of state now and not people that's actually from here. Well, there
2: are in town Neighborhoods. There are areas that still have a lot of character, though, and and yeah. some of them you have even cited in the songs. So <laughs> I think you must like some aspects of in-town living, but I get what you say about the sprawl and maybe overdevelopment that is yeah, hurting this. It's moving real thing. Why did you want to film the music video for Sorry, Not Sorry at Truist Park? That's in Cobb County. Yeah.
3: So the reason for that location was because it was the new Braid Stadium. Because the old Braid Stadium was right there by Summer Hill, but they moved it. And I guess they made it like Georgia State now. Right. So I just had to go where the new Braid Stadium was at. And I don't know why they moved it all the way to Cobb, because I thought it was done. But that was the only, like, Braid Stadium. And I wanted to keep it in Atlanta.
2: Okay, so you you were there for the Braves in spite of the fact that the corporation that owns them moved them to Cobb County. Right. You're wearing Atlanta Falcons gear in the video, Amaretta. Why?
3: (laughs) It was supposed to be Braves gear but you know they had just like around the time when I shot the video they had just won the championship so everybody had went in the stores and bought all the brave <laughs> merch and stuff <laughs> okay so when I went in there to buy because I always usually get I, I got a whole lot of brave stuff but I don't wore it for a lot of my different videos so I didn't have no new stuff so when I went in there to get it it was nothing but falcon gear left, so I had to get the falcon's
2: Oh, my goodness. (laughs) I thought maybe you were sending us a message because the Falcons still play inside the city of Atlanta. Oh, no. No no statement there. (laughs) Would you tell us about the making of the song and video? Any collaborators you'd like to shout out?
3: I made the song last year in, like, April but I just was sitting on it for a minute because I knew that when I dropped it, I had to be like prepared for like what was coming next. And when I did the video, I just wanted it to feel like Atlanta. You know what I'm saying? That's why I did with like the Braves and like the Falcons jersey and stuff. And I had the what is called the Slinger car because mm-hmm. I know it's like a popular car in Atlanta that everybody like to drive in and stuff. So I just tried to do it like real Atlanta-based, like, you know, make it feel like home to everybody. Yeah, like collabs. I got Lotto on the remix, and I thought it was real fun. Everybody had a, made a big deal about it because she's from Clayco, but that was the point. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I'm curious about the pushback, and there's been a lot of it you've gotten from some famous people, too. Yeah. You seem like you can more than handle it, Amaretta, but... What are some of the comments you've received?
3: they just been going crazy. Like, a lot of people was making a big deal about the location I shot it at. Like, they was talking about my clothes. They were just trying to find any little thing to pick. And, of course, the people from the outskirts, they the most upset because they've been telling everybody that they're from Atlanta. And then I came out and told them <laughs> that they're not, so they embarrassed a little bit. Well, do you feel
2: like there's hope? For unity here. The East Point and Clayco and Decatur. Can we all live together in Atlanta harmony?
3: Yeah, we, we that's what we doing now. They just need to <laughs> know where they're originally from.
2: <laughs> Rapper Amaretta the Great, her new single Sorry, not sorry. Debates who gets to claim true Atlanta heritage in our sprawling and changing city. In a moment, the Edgewood String Quartet takes us to dinner with Picasso. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. During the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, the Edgewood String Quartet was formed to provide socially distanced, masked live concerts in safe spaces for the public. Now that concerts And shows are resuming in person, indoors. The Edgewood String Quartet is playing at Pullman Yards, a program called Tasting Notes, Dinner with Picasso. The event is part of the Imagine Picasso exhibition at Pullman Yards. The hour-long performance also includes a four course dinner related to the music. To tell us more about this multifaceted evening is violinist Adelaide Federici of the Edgewood String Quartet and Adam Rosenfeld, the owner of Pullman Yards. Welcome to City Lights.
0: Thank you. Thanks for having us.
2: Thank you. Adam. For those who have not yet been to Pullman Yards, would you describe its appearance and explain the transformation you made to an entertainment space?
0: Sure. So it's a 27-acre historic site on the eastern edge of the inside the perimeter in the city of Atlanta. And we bought it four years ago with the idea of transforming it into a arts and entertainment and cultural destination, And it's primarily a mixed-use destination, but we like to say that we sort of mixed up the (laughs) mixed-use. Instead of sort of focusing on big-box retail and other things, we focus on the arts.
2: Well, we certainly think that's the right way to do it. I mean, talk about priorities in order. If you could describe what the space, what the area looked like, and what you saw in your mind's eye for its potential.
0: I spent with my wife, Maureen, we spent considerable amount of time looking for a particular site. We visited many states, we visited many cities, and we were looking for an opportunity to do, like I said, a sort of mixed up, mixed use development. Um, some people say disrupted. I like mixed use, mixed use. And so we met with a number of mayors and executives and economic development officials. And eventually we, we found this place, thankfully, um, originally through the state and Invest Atlanta. And then we were fortunate enough to win a public bid for the site in the summer of 2017. And for those of you who have been there and for those of you who haven't, it's quite an extraordinary site. As I mentioned earlier, it is 27 acres, inclusive of 12 historic buildings that were all built between 1904 and 1965. Now the buildings were all in various stages of disrepair. Of the 12, none of them were in repair. They were all beat up pretty badly. But what was really without dispute was the beautiful sort of architecture from the time period, the architectural significance that laid in the bones, and what we learned as we visited the site for the first time, much of the civil rights history that was, you know, prominent in this in that part of the time when the site was being built through the middle part of the 20th century. And when we first saw the site, we we're from Los Angeles, moved here after we bought the site, and we had just had our second child at the time, and she was turning one, I believe. And my wife didn't make that first trip. I called her from one of the buildings and said this is it, this is, this is the place. Everything we've been looking for, this is it. Because although it was in the state of disrepair, just you could see the promise and the potential. And we do come from the film business originally. And so part of our intention across this mixed use, uh, entertainment-based mixed use, was to focus on film and television. And I knew that the site was already used for film and television sporadically, but, but often enough that it, that it made an impact in that industry. And we really believe from the first day we saw it, I believe and told Maureen, and then she saw it on pictures Said this is the place. And we saw it because we, we knew that had we put some care and some thought into the planning and really took a deliberate approach, you know, when you set out to make a mixed use development, but focusing on arts and entertainment and, you know, creative and cultural economies, I call them, when you do that privately funded, and you have art exhibits and museums and university partners and symphonies and orchestra events like the one we're here to talk about, when you do that privately funded, those are things that are normally done in civic-based organizations or publicly funded organizations. So we really had to sort of take a deliberate but well-planned approach. And the buildings are part of the show. And you know, if you had the opportunity, and hopefully people will have the opportunity to see Picasso or saw Van Gogh, the buildings are part of the show. And we were fortunate that we were the North American premier for that particular Van Gogh exhibit. And the Picasso exhibit, which just opened a few days ago, we're, it's only opened in San Francisco and Atlanta. So they chose this city over every other uh, besides San Francisco. So we were honored. And we, we feel that the vision of the arts, Emory University is moving in. In a few weeks, Emory University is opening one of only eight international science Galleries in the world. It would be one of only two in the United States. And that is um, a permanent installation. And that opens in a few weeks. So if you combine the symphonies we put together in the arts and the university partners and the science, and we throw in restaurants and bars too. We do have we have big events, but I, I feel like that's we're gaining on the realization of this unorthodox, yet we feel worthy vision.
2: So it truly is vision, because here you took what began life as a sugar and then fertilizer processing plant, and then it became a place for repairing railroad cars when the Pullman Company bought it to repair their sleeper carts. Adelaide would you tell us the origins of the edgewood string quartet and the candlelight concerts
4: so september 2020 these concerts started in town and they're all different programs but there are candles and and it's a very beautiful setting but it was a way for us to have concerts that were outside we we started at the trolley barn on edgewood avenue which is how we got our name the four of us had played together in a variety of different ways, like in the opera or the Atlanta symphony or going to college together. Like there's like every possible combination of how our paths crossed, but we had never actually worked together as a quartet. So we just started playing these. And as we got playing them more often, we just really clicked and we fit together musically and personality wise. And it's just been a really awesome match. So then we made it official and gave ourselves a name And then even more official, an Instagram account. (laughs) So then from there, we've been playing all these different candlelight shows. And then actually from the candlelight shows, we've met a bunch of different people who've either introduced us to people or we've collaborated with directly. And all these other opportunities have popped up, which have been amazing. So with Adam, we met a woman at one of our candlelight shows who was friends with him. And she thought we might be a good match for something at Pullman Yard. And she introduced us and yeah. And that, so that was amazing. And here we are.
0: <laughs> Adelaide also played and does play in our Pullman Pops, which is our large 45 piece symphony. So Adelaide, you add another connection to us.
4: Yeah. All, all these different ways of connecting. Yeah. I got to play the very first Pullman Pop show last summer, which was really fun and We ended up moving inside for that concert because of weather and the place looked so magical. Like when you see it from the street, I've always driven by Pullman Yard because my son plays soccer over there. So I'm always driving over there and from the street, it's like a really beautiful building. But when we did the concert for Pullman Pops, it it
2: was just gorgeous. Very special. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitz, speaking with violinist Adelaide Federici of the Edgewood String Quartet, and Adam Rosenfeld, the owner of Pullman Yards. I read that the Edgewood String Quartet is dedicated to breaking down the wall between performers and audiences, classical and non-classical music. In what ways do you break down those barriers?
4: Well, number one, we talk in in our concerts, which I think none of the things we do are like revolutionary, but they're just things that we hadn't really done consistently anyway. And, you know, when we're playing these concerts, especially starting out, they were smaller audiences and we were right there with the audience members and they would come up to us afterwards and you know tell us how they felt being at the concert and like interesting stories. And we just like it gave us more of an opportunity to engage with our audience that we maybe didn't have when we're playing like in the opera orchestra or something like that. And so when we started out, we were doing like, say we played Vivaldi four seasons. We wouldn't just play the four seasons. We'd play some of the seasons and we'd talk about Vivaldi and kind of give it some modern day perspective. And the four of us have all grown up with classical music forever and ever. And lots of audience members, like they don't know anything about Vivaldi, but if you tell them a few pieces of information that they can listen out for and some context, it can totally change their experience. And so it's just been really cool. Like even now we do some pops heavy concerts, like we have a show that's mostly the music of Queen and I know, but we play a few opera arias in there and You know, we tell them about the opera arias, like the opera themselves and what's happening in that scene. And there are people that have come up afterwards and they're like, I had no idea opera could be so moving and, you know, such an experience and, you know, and it's kind of cool. And now maybe they'll go hear an opera and it's, it's just been really neat getting to kind of hopefully a new audience to visit classical concerts as well.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Reduce the formality and something that I've always thought was unfortunate, the elitism that's associated with classical music because there shouldn't be. This, I guess, is for both of you or either of you. How did you come up with the idea for Tasting Notes, Dinner with Picasso,
4: I I can tell the overall or it's a great idea. (laughs) It's Adam came up with the name. (laughs) (laughs) We've been trying to think of ways that we could expand even more than like reach more people. And when Van Gogh was happening and I had this dream of a concert based on a cocktail and one of my very favorite cocktails is the French 75. And so we were thinking, oh, we could have this French cocktail, and we could design a program around it, and it could be lots of French music, and it could go with the Van Gogh exhibit that's there. And then, right after we had this idea, the Van Gogh exhibit was done. <laughs> but then, when the Picasso exhibit opened up, we we're like, oh, we could do a Picasso program. And so, we pitched the idea to Adam, and I'll let you take over, Adam, if you want. So, I think
0: our goal and mission or one of our internal mandates is to make the arts more accessible perhaps you know you know a little more uh cooler more relaxed space to see classical music that's why we do you know immersive art and other things so it provides an artistic and cultural experience but it does it in a setting where people aren't meant to be intimidated and meant to have fun so this was only a few weeks ago that we launched this idea. We wanted to time it to about the first week or so of the Picasso opening. But we don't envision this as a one-off. We, you know, as Adelaide mentioned, she and, and her partners and Alice, her partner, um, they have all sorts of ideas that we have already sort of been ruminating and, and planning. And, you know, we do have our own executive chef on site and we do have our own bar program and our own, you know, sort of um, head of beverage and mixology So we can do things in this manner that we hope the audience is able to come and appreciate art in a slightly different way, but equally authentic, we hope.
2: Well, let's talk about this cross-fertilization here. How did you and Chef Chris Hughes work to create this four-course dinner?
0: Well, now I'd be presumptuous that I have anything to do with that. (laughs) Uh, Thankfully, we have such faith in Chris and we're so happy to have him on board. And he does come from an extensive, you know, very superlative sort of background in fine dining across Atlanta. So that was, I wouldn't speak for him that that was the easy part, but I think it was an exciting part for him and certainly an exciting challenge and much different sort of task than a chef would ordinarily have, maybe in a sort of traditional fine dining setting. So, and I think that's what it's also is exciting about the place, especially for people who are artistically inclined. You know, we're very broad in our sort of spectrum and and broad in our sort of allowances for people sort of like, you know, spreading their wings artistically. So in this particular show, being that it's Picasso-themed, you know, it's meant to be imbued with Spanish influences from both the food and the drink. And I know Adelaide and her partners, the Quartet, have put together a really cool mixed Spanish-influenced show. And we're excited for the others because there's some really great ideas that their group has brought to us for other show ideas. And I know the chef, Chef Chris's very excited, and our head of uh, you know mixology and beverage, uh, Marion is equally as excited to put those food and drinks together with it.
2: Picasso was a proud Spaniard by birth, had a lot of problems, as did much of the free world when the fascists took over in 1939. But as the creator of your exhibition. Annabelle Moshe said Picasso was French much more than he was Spanish. <laughs> How does the music you are choosing reflect the French and Spanish aspects of Picasso?
4: Well, we sort of divided it up into like the forces of the meal. We're going to open with Entracht to Act 3 of Carmen. And then the next part is his buddies. Picasso was friends with all the great composers of the day. And then we kind of visit the clubs where they would hang out and like music from the time that would have been heard in clubs. So there's some Joplin, the rags were very popular then, and Germaine Montero. (laughs) Les amoureux du Havre
5: n'ont pas besoin de la mer Il est bateau ce navre d'être toujours seul sur la mer Je t'aime, tu m'aimes, on s'aimera jusqu'à la fin du monde
4: Puisque la terre est ronde mon amour t'en fait pas. Amour... And like Edith Piaf, those, that type of music and then the final part is kind of like his legacy and influence on artists around the world. The music of Piazzolla, also Miles Davis. The Clash, which is Spanish Bombs, is partially about the Guarnica, Picasso's great, great work. Spanish
5: songs in Andalusia the truth inside in the days of 39 the vendetta open, the duke of Locker, dead and gone, bullet holes in the cemetery wall, the black car, the guardian of the beer. the bombs on the Costa Rica, my dying in on the juicy tents and I, banished. You have to care of Benito.
4: So then, David Bowie, who's known as the Picasso of pop, and so we can just tie all this together and like his influence in future generations and you know how powerful his art is.
2: Violinist Adelaide Federici of the Edgewood String Quartet with Adam Rosenvelt, the owner of Pullman Yards. Friday at Pullman Yards, the Edgewood String Quartet performs tasting notes, dinner with Picasso. Tickets at PullmanYards.com. And you can find more information on our website, wabe.org. Coming up, Dance Canvas brings their diverse choreography to the first center at Georgia Tech. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. Is City Lights on WABE? I'm Lois Wright says, Thank you for listening. The pioneering 20th century choreographer George Balanchine once said, Dance is music made visible. Dance Canvas explores the conceptual layers of the art form in their work and initiatives. They'll showcase works by new artists this weekend at Georgia Tech's First Center and premiere three new dance films as part of their new Dance Canvas on Film program. Joining me now via Zoom, Dance Canvas Artistic Director Angela Harris, with the professional program manager, Dana Woodruff, and dancer-choreographer, Atarius Armstrong. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. Thank you, Lois. Thank we you. are
1: so thrilled to be here.
2: Oh, I'm thrilled to talk with you. Angela, how did Dance Canvas pivot during the pandemic?
1: Oh, We had a lot of time to really think about what was important to us during the pandemic. At the start of the pandemic, we kind of didn't know what to do. I know for everyone, it's a whole new world. There was a lot of tragedy happening. And what we wanted to do was be there and be a support and be a resource for dance artists in Atlanta. So for us, during the pandemic, we really listened to what our choreographers needed. We heard that they needed space to create and time and support. And so we we built a partnership with Atlanta Contemporary and we had outdoor performances. And this is actually our first main stage performance back at the first center in two years. The Mm. pandemic hit us as we were walking into the theater for our 2020 performances. And so this is exciting for us to be back. And I think the other thing that the pandemic allowed us to do as we started to think about how to support artists is a lot of things moved virtual. And what we realized was that there were choreographers that were in need of the resources to be able to move their choreography onto film. And that actually came about by one of our choreographers, Terry Lynn Jones, who suggested that we create a dance canvas on film program. So that is kind of all the results of being creative during the pandemic.
2: Well, That was a robust endeavor, and it's ongoing. Please tell us about the upcoming performances highlighting the next generation.
1: So this is our 14th season. We are thrilled to be back at the First Center for the Arts. It's a wonderful partnership that we have with Georgia Tech Arts to bring our choreographers to this stage. Each year we select eight to ten choreographers. This year we have eight choreographers that are presenting works, contemporary works, mostly this year. We have one hip-hop choreography pair that is presenting a work, and we provide the choreographers with resources to help them develop their pieces for stage, but they get to premiere them for Atlanta audiences, and we're really excited to see the six months worth of work finally come and come alive in one stage.
2: Mm. What is the Choreographer Career Development Initiative?
1: Well, our Choreographer Career Development Initiative was designed to provide emerging professional choreographers with a place to workshop and grow <laughs> ideas and then provide them with the resources to bring those pieces to stage. And this is actually designed because there really isn't an entry-level way for choreographers to have their work commissioned by professional companies. A lot of freelance emerging choreographers have to self-produce work. They have to find dancers to hire. Atarius is a really, has a really exciting new dance company that's here in Atlanta. And we want to put his work in front of our audiences. So eventually those people will become his audiences. It's like a stepping
6: stone. So it's like we provide this platform for these young artists so that they can have their work shown and for audiences to see them.
2: And how are the choreographers selected? Dana, is there an audition process? Is it, well, I guess it would be virtual.
6: Yes, we put a call out for submissions. And then, yes, we we look at everything digitally and go from there and make our decision. It's hard because we often have so many wonderful artists submit. But yes, we narrow it down to between
1: 8 to 10 per year.
2: Mm. And what are you looking for in particular?
1: we have a panel that actually makes the decision. So it's not just Dana and I that are watching it. I think we really look for new ideas and we look for choreographers who need this stepping stone, as Dana put it, to make the next step in their career and in their life as an artist here in
2: Atlanta. Atarius, you were one of those selected choreographers. Your piece will be featured in the upcoming performance. What can you tell us about it?
5: Yeah. So, one, I have to say thank you to Angela and Dana for even allowing me to uh, be a part of this process. The piece that I will be presenting is called Cabbage in the Concrete, which was based off of my grandfather just so happening to uh, grow a cabbage in his concrete driveway. And it made me think about the connection to my family and our personal lineage and how we as individuals have this natural ability to kind of grow through strange environments and strange places. And so, yeah, the piece itself is just all about reconnecting to family lineage and uh, the healing of generational trauma.
2: Mm, it's a wonderful metaphor. How do you translate that into movement? I mean, I'm curious about the cabbage.
5: Yeah, It's been interesting translating it to movement. Part of it, I wanted to kind of um, go about it from like a narrative and storytelling point of view. But another part was just that I wanted to focus on all of these different layers and richness that comes with uh, the aspects of family and how there's never just say, flat story. There are always these little intricacies and things that are kind of hidden under the surface that you might not necessarily see. And so that kind of goes into play with the the layers of the cabbage, if you will naturally as a choreographer, a lot of my movement tends to be very athletic combined with a little bit of martial arts and acrobatics combined with contemporary dance. And so I knew that at the basis that was going to be there. And so I think the challenging part of having created this work was um, applying all of that, getting all of the flash and bang on the work, and then slowly but surely starting to peel back and kind of refine and craft what does this environment or this family look like within these bodies on stage.
2: Can you tell us about your approach to constructing a new dance piece? Do you select music first? Or do you create the dance and then find music to match?
5: I create the dance first. And sometimes I think it can be a little bit frustrating during the process. I don't think that my dancers have gotten frustrated with me. But I know that sometimes the going back and forth of selecting music and kind of finding things that work and don't work can be a little bit challenging. But Normally I tend to approach it with the phrase work and the choreography first, and then we adapt to the music. Um, And that's kind of how it's been with uh, this work in particular as well. We started with just a general idea or theme around what the music might sound like. I knew that I wanted an initial soundscape that would then develop into something else. And so I was lucky and lucky enough to be able to find a composer, Michael Wall, who's been very uh, collaborative in terms of actually building out this this score that actually works for the nature of the piece.
2: Hmm. How would you describe your experience as a choreographer in this 2021-2022 20, cohort of Dance Canvas?
5: Yeah, it's been it's been great. I think that Angela and the rest of the Dance Canvas team um, have been very proactive in terms of providing us resources as choreographers and also as artistic leaders, which I think has been a great part of the process. It's not just about, you know, how are you creating this work, but it's also about how are you creating this work and actually leading a group of people and marketing yourself and building connections. And so I found that it's been a a very robust and enriching um, process. It's definitely been a little bit challenging initially, you know, having to navigate through the challenges of COVID and having to have things just kind of like just go out of whack just due to, you know, things being virtual or getting shut down because of snow and schedules getting moved everywhere. But for the most part, it has been very, very rewarding. And I think that kind of in the nature of this work and of the past couple of years is that, you know, we as artists will um, typically kind of thrive in these situations where you're really having to kind of push through and find a creative avenue to get to your end goal.
2: Mm-hmm. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wright's speaking with Angela Harris and Dana Woodruff of Dance Canvas, along with choreographer and dancer Atarius Armstrong. Dana, would you tell us, please, about the new film program, of Dance Canvas?
6: Yes, I'd love to. So this is a brand new program this year that we're offering. And as Angela mentioned, it was brought to us by Terry Lynn Jones. And we have three wonderful artists who are going to be presenting new films, Chanteney Doss, Veronica Silk, and Dana Sokolowski. And they've been working all these months um on their films, and we brought in advisors to work with them and um, offer them mentorship and It's been really exciting to watch these projects grow
2: I imagine there there must have been a learning curve involved in dancing, yeah I mean, having been trained yeah. to dance <laughs> on stage or choreograph for a stage. And then you have this camera and lens and lighting, all these things you must consider.
6: Absolutely. And to be honest, this is not something that I know much about. So that's why we brought in people who really do know how to construct these films and what it takes to put into it and create it. And yeah, we're very fortunate. We have Britt Fischel and Daniel Gortzman and Andrew Knowlton came in to consult. And and they have, you know, years of experience with creating dance for film because it is quite different. And I'd say Angela and I are not aficionados in this area. So,
2: Nor would anyone <laughs> have expected you to be. I think that is one of the silver linings, if. There is such a thing from the pandemic is learning just how much we can add to our skill sets. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Definitely. In this case, talent. What do the three films depict or convey?
6: Well, I can talk a little bit about each one. I know that Shantane Doss's film explores mental health and specifically women of color and how sometimes it can go without being acknowledged. And so her film explores themes around that. And then Veronica Silk's film explores futurism and the beauty and majesty of of, um, African-American beauty and, and features. And then Dana's film is interesting. It has, I feel, multiple themes. Angela, do you want to
1: talk about her film? Yeah, Dana lost her mother when she was very young. And so what she wanted to explore in this film was the presence of spirits around you, your internal struggles, what's real and what's in your in your mind. And she goes so much more in depth with kind of the, how this young girl and and the loss of a mother early on affects just her mental health, but also the love and the memory, I think is all encapsulated in Dana's film. Uh, All told through dance as well. So I think that that's that's really the beauty of the dance on film lens (laughs) is that, and I've learned this in the process, that the camera is also depicting movement. So, the camera is actually part of the choreographic element in these films and what can be told just through movement
2: and through imagination. How special. Do you think the film program of Dance Canvas will continue? After the pandemic, hopefully there will be an end to this.
1: Yeah, I, I hope so. I mean, I was intrigued. I've learned so much. If there's a need for it, I think that we are positioned to help to fill that need. And the more that we can um, support art, artists and dance artists making work and making a living here in Atlanta, that's really what our mission is with Dance Canvas.
2: Dance Canvas Artistic Director Angela Harris, Dana Woodruff Professional Program Manager, and choreographer and dancer Atarius Armstrong. The 2022 dance performances at the First Center for the Arts are March 25th and 26th. The film screenings premiere today at the First Center, and will stream online during the week of April 4th. Dance Canvas will also have an encore performance, April 2nd and 3rd, at the Aurora Theatre in Gwinnett. More information is on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., Kiwai Mata brings their rich African celebration to seven stages with I Am ATL Woman. Plus, Blue Heron Nature preserves artistic collaboration with Atlanta Public Schools. And 3D digital artist Kate Lama shares her inspiration in our series, Speaking of the Arts. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website wabe.orgslash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drogues. Summer Evans is our producer. And our engineer is Shelly Knavey. I'm your host, Lois Wright's Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow me on Twitter at LOIS. R-E-I-T-Z-E-S Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E, Atlanta.